text this morning is verse 12 of 1 Timothy 6, but really we're going to be looking at the sort of theme and direction of this whole part of Timothy's letter that he received from Paul. And in our text, really, we have a clear exhortation to the believer and an insight into what the Lord requires from us if we are his people this morning. You know, often in our Christian lives, if that's our state, if we're the Lord's, we we have expectations of him. You know, as we dwell upon him, as he's revealed in the word, and we think much of him, but also we need to be aware of what he expects of us as his people, blessed as we are because of his gracious working in our lives. And really this text is speaking to those who know the Lord, those who are his people, otherwise it makes no sense. You know, to give instructions like this to those who are not yet in a state of grace would be unbearable for them. It would be impossible. You know, as we preach the word, those who think being a Christian is all about what we do in terms of earning favor with God will be disappointed. You know, the standard will be too high. It will be impossible. But the gospel is not about us uh, attaining that standard in our own strength. It is rather looking outside of ourselves to the only one who can, and that being the Lord Jesus. It's only in him that we can be made right with God. It's only when we, we know him and the grace of God in our lives that we are able to live to the glory of God. And so to grasp our text, you know, we have to know the foundational truth that Paul laid out even at the very beginning of this letter. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know, what is this faithful, worthy saying? What is the thing that demands our attention, all our deep thinking and vitally our belief? It is that Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the altogether lovely one, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the fairest of ten thousand, is our Lord and our Savior. And it's through him alone that we have hope of salvation. You know, if, if we're believers here this morning, we owe everything to Christ. And we rejoice that he ever came willingly to do that saving work given to him by his Father. And you know, fully God, fully man, there is none like him. And he stepped down, he came to save sinners like us. The Bible says that we are born sinners, that we are in rebellion against God, that we deserve judgment and hell, and that is what we face unless there is that divine intervention in our lives, unless there is that divine rescue and we are turned around. You know, it's wonderful when that takes place. The individual is brought to a point in their lives when they're awakened in their soul. And suddenly, you know, things that had no impact upon them grip them. And they're given the gifts of repentance and faith. And they, they turn from their rebellion and their sin. And they're drawn to the Savior to believe in him. Uh, it's incredible when you think about it, the wonder of it, to, to trust in the Savior. And, you know, our sin is imputed to him. And we know that it, the penalty has been paid in full. And the principle and the power of sin, past, present, and future, the whole of our sin, nailed to the cross. It's no longer ours. The debt is paid. But you know, the reality is we also need righteousness, and we haven't got any. But the righteousness of Christ is given, a glorious robe, as it were, in which we are clothed and accepted with God forever. 
And so in Christ, you know, we are recipients of these incredible benefits by grace. And you know, if we're in Christ, we're able to say that we have peace with God, that we belong to him. You know, we can say, I know whom I believe. You know, I'm, I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. You know, and that's the start. Only a, a forgiven people, those who have received grace, can fight this fight that we're speaking of. You know, only uh, the Lord's people can, can lay hold in this manner. Only those who know him and want to walk with him and know his way in our lives through this broken world. You know, the world doesn't want that. The world wants to go its own way. You know, and sadly, there are even some Christians who can have that type of spirit too. You know, I'm going to do things my way. I, I want to go my own way. But for the Lord's people, it should be the opposite. Lord, show me your way. I want to live according to your will and to your word because your way is best. And that's what's in view this morning, to know the way of the Lord, to have that applied to our hearts, to, to trust implicitly that his way is right and that salvation is all of him. But then how are we to fight that good fight of faith? And so Paul is exhorting Timothy to stand by the true faith. And really the challenge goes beyond Timothy and really is for all of us if we're believers. We have a great responsibility because what we believe, who we trust, should have a direct impact upon how we live and how we worship and how we go about our lives every day. And so I want to show some of the things from this passage. And the first thing that I want you to see is that as believers, you know, there really are dangers all around us. There are dangers all around us. And building to our text in the lead up to it, Paul highlights one of the, the many dangers and hindrances that can come to the believer as they seek to walk with the Lord. You know, friends, I, I don't know how you're doing today. And you know, if you're a believer, I don't know how your walk with the Lord is. Maybe you feel as though there are many hindrances in your way. You know, maybe you feel as though you've just been stumbling along and you, you feel tired. And you know, there are many perils which would throw us off the right path and from serving the master. Now, there are many things that Paul could speak about, but he takes one theme and it begins in verse 6. I want you to see it. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. You know, we have godliness if we are in a right relationship with Christ by grace. But Paul speaks of godliness with contentment. Content with my circumstances. Content with the measure of strength that he gives me. Content with the measure of ability that he has endowed me with. Little honor, whatever it may be. Whatever our situation may be, we are content. You know, Paul says something quite remarkable in another one of his letters, Philippians 4. He says, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. It was something that he had to learn and did learn. And you say, well, how? Well, the whole matter rests upon his relationship with the Lord. You know, Paul doesn't lean on his own strength or even in his own knowledge of scriptural doctrine, but rather knowing him. It's his relationship with the Lord that is vital. That is the gain. 
to be godly and content with what God gives us and with where he places us, to be able to say, Lord, I am content to do your will exactly where you have placed me. And Paul grounded his sense of self, his outlook of life in the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. He looked away from himself. His contentment was the result of bowing his heart and mind to God's will, no matter what conditions he faced. I remember a number of years ago, I was listening to Vernon Hyam, and he spoke of his father and grandfather being slate quarrymen in northwest Wales. And in these quarries, by all accounts, there were these sheet slopes on the side of the mountain which had been blown out and, and almost like a glass front. And so if you worked in one of these quarries, you were given an area and you'd be sort of suspended by ropes with a, a little seat to sit or stand on and, you know, lower down and on you went. And sometimes you would be given what was called a, a poor wall. In other words, it wouldn't really yield very much. But you didn't complain or you'd lose your job. You had to be content with the wall you had and how much rock or slate you know, was there. You had to learn to be content in very hard circumstances. You know, for the believer, there is great gain, there is overcoming gain, there is refreshing and renewing strength when we learn that godliness, you know, we're content with. You know, and our contentment can and should be grounded in our union with Jesus. That's where it is. Knowing that the Lord Jesus is our all in all, that he's more precious to us than anything else. And you know, when we have that view, when we understand that, when we rest in that, it transforms the way that we view our circumstances and the measure of contentment we have. You know, circumstances are temporary and they should not rob us of the joy and glory that are ultimately ours in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we can know too that our Heavenly Father is in charge, that He's working for our good. And even when we don't understand what is going on, we can trust Him. And that is enough. You see, and so, so Paul is speaking about this godliness with contentment is great gain. But he says there is a great danger that comes. And it comes to believers. He goes on to explain. He says, look, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we'll see, we shall be content. And so remember who he's speaking to in the wider text, and those are in various situations in life. But he says to the believer, don't be ensnared by seeking after those ordinary things or be jealous or envious of others, because in godliness there is contentment that spreads into every part of our life and its circumstances. And it's a real danger for us. The problem is we are surrounded by the dangerous pull of not being content like that. You know, riches in themselves are, are not wrong, nor is poverty a disgrace. No, this is a matter of the heart. That's where the battle is. And he says that those who desire to be rich, those who develop a, an inordinate love, always wanting more of this world, wanting to, to better the amount of what they have, they can fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And he says in verse 10, that well-known text, for the love of money, when that which is not worthy of my love becomes the love of my heart, 
is a root of all kinds of evil. And it leads some to stray from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. It ensnares, it consumes, it ruins, it brings destruction. And you you might think, well, you know, believers, surely they're wise to that. But no, we're so prone to wander. And we need the warning that if we go that way, we will only embrace pain and sorrow. Look out for the tyranny of things, for the attractions of this world. It is easy for all of the, the apparent prosperity of material things in this world to become the dominant thing in our hearts and become idols in our hearts. And you know, the reality is that there are believers who can stray so easily and they set up these idols of the world in their hearts you know, one time they seemed to be going on with the Lord and eager for the Lord and, and engaged in his cause. And then suddenly they're wandering off after all these other things or the ordinary idols. What happens? Well, what happens is this. They drift and they go further and further and further away. And so much so that they're nowhere with the Lord. But ultimately this challenge comes to us to be careful of anything that hinders our spiritual progress, and not least here, the whole attraction of material things. And verse 11, he says, But you, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Run for your life. Don't think that you're strong enough that you, you know, cannot be tempted or that you cannot fall. There are areas in your life where you have to say, Run. Get out. Why? Because the danger that those things bring can really ruin your walk with the Lord. Have nothing to do with it. You know, John Owen, the Puritan, said that Satan comes with temptation to the frontiers of our mind. And so we have to guard the frontiers. We have to be alert to the danger. We have to take holiness seriously. And he says, but you flee these things, run for your life. The sad thing is that so many believers seem to be asleep in spiritual things. They don't guard the frontiers. They leave the gates open. And then they wonder why there is such difficulty. And then you say, well, where do you run to? If I've got to run, where do I run to? Well, you run to the Lord. And you run to the good things. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience and gentleness. You dwell upon the Lord and the heart of God and all of his perfect attributes. We're to pursue him. He is to be the desire of our heart. You know, it's not that we're asked to run and then, you know, to run and then stand and do nothing. No, this is his way. We are to pursue him and pursue him wholeheartedly. And we need his help. And that's why we cry out, Lord, teach me your way. Lord, lead me in a plain path. Lord, help me to walk in this way. Help me to walk close to you because there are so many dangers. There's a seriousness. The perils that surround us. And that's why he leads in then to say, fight the good fight. Fight these things, battle these things. And what we find here is that we move from the perils that are around us to the passion of true faith. You know, dangers surround, but the believers should have a driving passion in their lives. 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let me put it like this. 
This faith, knowing Jesus Christ, walking with him, is worth fighting for. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for to know him. And, you know, we mustn't lose sight of what true faith actually is. There are many who blur it and are unclear about it. But Paul is calling us here to fight the good fight of faith, the faith which was once delivered to the saints. You know, the faith alone which leads to eternal life in Christ alone, by grace alone. And he understood that there is no one greater to pour out his life for than the Lord Jesus. That there's no greater cause than the gospel. That the issues that relate to eternal life are uppermost. The gospel being the only one that saves. We are battling for what is eternal. I wonder if you understand that. Or if you understand what is taking place. If you are walking with the Lord and the spiritual battle that we are in. You know, it's easy to lose sight of that when we get drawn in by the world and, you know, the world begins to encroach on our affections or even when the world just comes against us like those waves we looked at last Sunday morning. And I remember hearing the account of a, a tiny little church in the Midlands in the heart of Birmingham many years ago now. And uh, this little church building was surrounded. It had two big prosperous department stores on either side. And this little church was a real source of irritation to these, you know, big department stores, you know, these two towers either side. You know, why should they have this, this obstruction right next to them? And so they decided, these, you know, big wealthy owners, to, to buy it out and uh, to get the building in the land. And so both sets of owners table bids. Now, the elder of that church decided that he would use his works note paper to reply because he was the general manager at work and he, he wanted to give an official reply. Now, the note paper had a special heading upon it. It was Cadbury's. Now, this general manager also, he wasn't just anybody. His name was Mr. Cadbury. And so he wrote a response and he said, thank you so much for your interest, but let me give you a counter-proposal. Why don't I buy both of your buildings rather than you trying to buy this one, and uh, he sent it off. They were very silent. You see, they hadn't anticipated the power and the authority of the one that they were dealing with. They'd underestimated him. But he belonged to an organization, he was over that, which was far greater than these men, and it made them tremble. You know, the world may view us as small and insignificant and to be removed. But on our notepaper, as it were, is our great God. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And you know, whether we be many or whether we be few, if we are his, he is with us and our responsibility is to walk in his ways, to fight this good fight of faith, to maintain the truth of this glorious saving faith in Christ. You know, I don't know if you are passionate about the gospel. You know, do you delight in the gospel, this, this great truth of justification by faith, when a sinner is awakened by the grace of God and aware of their sin and aware of the holiness of God and aware of their need of Christ and then planted in them in the very spirit and heart of their soul is life and repentance and faith. 
The power of God at work in them. Conviction of sin and the grace of God to to see the beauty and the, the loveliness and the glory of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. You know, you can have conversations with people and at times, you know, we do and they're temporarily in some turmoil. Maybe something's gone wrong in their life and, you know, they've done something they're guilty about and they want to unburden and they, they want to know some relief. But, you know, when you really have the conversation, they don't want Christ. They just want the temporary relief. You know, and we have to ask, do these people, does this person desire God with all their heart or is it a convenience? Remember one pastor speaking of a time when he was dealing with a young man who who came to see him after a service and said he wanted to be a Christian. And the pastor spoke with him for some time and had concluded in his conversation that really this young man was was wrongly motivated. And so after a while, he said to this young man, he said, look, we've been speaking for a while. You know, you need to go home and and seek the Lord and, and think on the things that we've spoken of. But then the young man said something that he would never forget. The young man said to him, oh, pastor, he said, I cannot go home without him. I cannot go home without the Savior. I cannot go home without the Lord Jesus. And this pastor realized that he had misread the young man, that this was no convenient believism. This was a soul in earnest, God at work. And you know, the young man trusted Christ, and even today he's a leader in a church up country. You see, that's the faith worth fighting for. Genuine saving faith, encounters with Jesus Christ, a work of grace, the gift of God. You know, you can lose believism, but you can't lose this genuine faith. The faith which is given of God, which holds us in this life and holds us through all the the valleys we go through, even through the shadow of death and to be with him. This is the faith that saves. This faith, this walking with the Lord, this is worth fighting for. Faith which unites us to Christ and impacts all areas of our lives. You know, let me give you some ways in which it should impact us. You know, when we have this faith and we fight for this faith, it should impact how we worship. You know, there shouldn't be any pretense or, you know, or or hype, but the reality that we're coming into the presence of God. That in itself should thrill our hearts. To desire to keep that that dignity and reverence in worship of him. You know, here am I this morning and I'm before the Lord and many of you are here this morning and you're his people. But is that all? You know, are there not a, a company of angels according to the scriptures? But more than that, friend, he is here. He is with us. You know, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Are you aware of that? Do you understand that he is here? You know, what we do when we come together, when there's been a real movement of God, you know, people aren't taken up with just the externals and the the organized, what was the singing like, how many were there, all the rest. The presence, that's what we long for. And we're so quick to forget it. More than anything else, we should desire in the reading of the word, in the praying, in the preaching, that all would be cradled and surrounded and kept by his presence. And that the beauty of the Lord would rest upon us in our worship of him. And all we do should be presented as sweet incense in the merit of Christ to God to bring in glory. And our faith should do that. And we should fight for these things. 
also how we live. You know, we're men and women of faith. Whatever our circumstances or our lot may be, we, we look to him. You know, our faith is in him. He's done all things well. You know, are there times when we're afraid? Well, we all are. But our faith should bring us back to the one who is our comfort, to the source of our strength, knowing that he will see us through. And we've got a battle in that because the enemy wants to do all that he can to keep us away from him, to keep our eyes fixed elsewhere apart from him. We need him. That's what we've got to fight for. And that's why Paul says to Timothy and all men and women of faith, fight this good fight of faith. Don't deny, you know, not in word, heart, deed, worship or behavior. Fight for it. Hold on to it. Cling to it. There are going to be many perils, many dangers, many opponents. The enemy wants to pull you away. But this is the encouragement. Keep battling. But the battle is hard. And it's costly, but it's worth it. And that's why we must always consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners for the joy that was set before him. Fight the good fight. And then he says, notice, lay hold on eternal life. This is what the Lord requires of us. We are to battle for these things and then we are to lay hold on eternal life. He wants us to keep looking to the significant things. You know, some of you have lost sight of that. You're not looking to the significant things. You're looking to the temporal things. You know, we are to make sure that even though we are in this world, we are not to get bogged down because we have been given something that is so much greater. And though the world despises us, we belong to the great God. And we need to keep laying hold of that which has been given to us in Christ by grace. You know, in Romans 8, Paul speaks of the believer being called and justified and even glorified and he has been able to lay hold on this life. But, you know, there's so much more still. Look at what, you know, Paul writes here. He says, to which you are also called. That's an incredible thing. That God has called you, believer. You know, the Bible speaks of what we would term a general call. And that's when people naturally hear, you know, the call of the gospel. You know, maybe there are those here and, you know, they're hearing what I'm saying but they're not hearing in a believing sense. And so there's a, a general call that goes out. But this, this here is speaking of the effectual call when the Holy Spirit gives a person to hear with the inner man. You know, when I hear the gospel effectually, although I may have heard it many, many, many times before, now it comes with power to my heart and mind. Do you know, sometimes, you know, as a, as a preacher and different things, some people say, you know, maybe after a sermon, you know, you should preach the gospel like that more often. He said, well, you know, I seek to do that most times. But there are times when it comes with a particular power, when the Spirit of God is at work. You know, and when a person is converted, they're given to hear, and it, it dawns upon them, and they see with enlightenment and hear with understanding at last. They grasp it. That irresistible calling that penetrates the darkness of our understanding and sight, the inner eye and ear. And you know, that's what Paul is saying. He is calling us to himself to faith in him. And the awakened soul finds the grace of God irresistible, makes its way to Calvary, to our Lord and Savior. But friend, you know, that's not all the call. That's just the beginning. 
And as he calls me then, one day he will also call me home and call me to himself. You know, we've heard it so often, that lovely phrase, our God is the end of the journey. He calls me out of the pit and the darkness and out of my sin to his son during, you know, my life. But he calls me to the everlasting kingdom. And that's what Paul says. He says, you have been called in such a manner and you have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He says, Timothy, look, you've begun in this way. And if you've been faithful as you have been, you've got to continue to battle on in that faithfulness. Be consistent. And just as we called on the name of the Lord at the beginning to, you know, begin our Christian lives, so we have to continue to call upon his name. You know, it's very ordinary, practical in our lives. You know, we continue to pray. We continue to gather with fellow believers for worship. We continue to hear from his word. We continue to strive to walk in his grace and put sin to death and grow by his mercy. No one matures as a believer by accident. You know, some of you, I think, still think that, you know, you can just live and go along and then hopefully all of a sudden one day, you know, God's just going to almost zap you and then, you know, everything will fall into place. You don't grow into maturity by accident. It's a process as we walk with the Lord humbly day by day. That's what he requires of us. You know, today, if you're a believer, you know, you don't need to work on your salvation. Christ's finished work has secured that for you. But as one says, you are called to work out your salvation so that it changes you more and more, so that it shapes you. And you say, oh, but Lord, it's so hard. Yes, but my grace is sufficient. And he promises that he will give us all that we require for our every need. He will give us what we need. And so keep the faith, fight the faith, lay hold on eternal life. Remember who you are. You are the called of God. You have made a good confession and his provision will always be enough, even through to the very end to death. That's why he says, verse 14, keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Battle on with these things in mind. Keep looking to that glorious day. And friend, don't you long for those words, well done, good and faithful servant, or to be found faithful, fighting the good fight, laying hold on eternal life, living by his grace and by his strength, fulfilling that calling that he has given to us. And then as we finish, the perils or the dangers that are around us, the passion of true faith, when we know the law, to fight for it, to lay hold of it. But then lastly, the place of security. Look at verse 17. Paul says, believer, don't trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. He says, Timothy, this is your secret where your trust is. Trust in the living God. Trust in the living God. The living God, verse 16, who alone has immortality. He is the heart of all life and anything outside of him savors of eternal death and damnation. He alone has immortality. In him, we don't need to fear death. You know, I remember a preacher speaking of an African tribe and whenever they have a funeral for a believer, they never say that, that he or she is gone. Instead, they say, he's arrived home. She's arrived home. And what a day when the faithful believer sails 
into the harbour of glory in full sail to arrive in the presence of God with a whole host of angels rejoicing that their arrival. But more than that, God himself will be there to wipe away all tears and to tell us that in heaven there is no more suffering or hunger or thirst or death or any of these things, they are passed away. You know, this future in Christ, this new creation, it's worth waiting for, it's worth living for, it's worth dying for. God is going to renew all things, our souls, our minds, and ultimately our bodies, and even the, the whole environment in which we are, new heavens and new earth. And none of the things which currently spoil life on earth will be present. And all that is hoped for, all that is anticipated, will find its fulfillment. And that's why, friend, if you are living just for now and for this world, that's such a sad place to be in. There is never a need to seek to seize all you think you need now, no matter how tempting it might be, because the day is coming when God will bring all the joy and all the satisfaction that you could imagine to you in Christ. You know, is anything more important than this? Is anything worthy of our hearts than this to fight for these things, to lay hold of these things? You know, Paul says something very lovely as he draws it all together in verse 20. He says, oh, Timothy, God, what was committed to your trust? You know, that's what the Lord requires. You know, if we're believers this morning, you know, my prayer for you is that we will keep what has been committed to our trust. To cherish the faith, to fight the good fight of faith. It is worthwhile to lay hold of eternal life. This is what we're called to. And it's only our union with Christ that provides the power and the potential for this. When the Lord Jesus underpins our hearts and our lives, there's no limit to the extent we will joyfully go to as we run for him. You know, friend, if Christ is not in view for you this morning, you're going to struggle. We need to look to Jesus. And Paul is able to say, you know, at the very end of his life as he approaches death, 2 Timothy 4, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice, he never asked Timothy to do anything that he'd not done himself. How wonderful to meet your end like that. I have kept the faith and to end well and to be with him and to be home. Friend, that's what I long for for myself and it's what I long for for you and that in Christ we would know the reality of 1 Corinthians 2 I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love the Lord Jesus this morning? Are you fighting the good fight? Are you laying hold of eternal life? I pray that by God's grace you are, because the future in Christ is bright. Amen.